Now we're back in our book of Acts. We left off a couple of weeks ago, Paul preaching to the people in Athens. The town, if you remember, full of idols, idolatry, a lot of things going on. And they even had a, a marker that said, to the unknown God. It's like they're trying to have all their bases covered. They want to make sure everything's covered, that every God they could possibly think of was covered. So they even made up one. And Paul used that as a, as a jumping point to be able to preach the gospel to them. In fact, in Acts 17, 22, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopolis and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm gonna to proclaim to you. This is just another example of Paul being able to use situations that he comes up with in his life, he sees, and he's able to use that as a conversation starter to bring the gospel to them. And we ended verse two, or ended two weeks ago with this verse in verse 28. This is the first part of that verse, it says, for in him we live and move and have our being. And we know that part. I think that's a pretty common verse. A lot of us know that, that verse. But what we don't know, maybe, is this is actually a quote from a poet in their time frame. The guy by the name of, if I can get it right, Epimenides. You know, I gotta tell you, if I wrote the Bible, my names would be John and Paul and all these easy names, not these weirdo names they've got there. But for Paul to know this was written by a secular author, and he goes on in that later verse, in verse 28, and he says this, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul was able to quote back to them two secular writers and use those as a springboard to talk to them about the gospel. I read that for a moment, and I thought, you know, what's this tell you about Paul? He's a pretty well-read guy. He knew what was going on. He knew the writers in that time. He knew what was popular. He understood what was going on. He's able to use secular situations to talk to people about Christ. Not only did he know God's word, which you know, that's a pretty deep, big deal for me, but he's able to also use what was going on in society to comment on it and then turn it around and bring the gospel to them. And I think that in order to be an effective believer, we need to understand the society in which we live. You know, we're called to live in the world, right? We're called to be a part of the world, but not be influenced by the decision-making process of the world. What's that mean? We don't live our lives the way the world tells us to live, but we still interact with the world on a daily basis. How many of you have regular jobs? You got a regular job every day. You pay taxes, you interact with your school district, you do all the things that the world does. The difference is you don't adhere to their principles. You interact with them, you work with them, but you use that as a, as a stepping stone to maybe bring the gospel to them. It doesn't mean we don't learn about the world. It means we learn about it so that we're able to effectively minister to it. Now back in Acts, or in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said this while ministering to some folks he was talking to there, he says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. That means you have to be able to carry on a conversation with the people you're talking to. You have to know a little bit about what interests them, what's going on in the world, how does that affect them. 
Paul was up on current events. I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about, they call them Generation Z. How many have ever heard that one? Generation Z is mostly from people born from 2000 to now. We all hear about the millennials, right? That's the big group right now. Even bigger than baby boomers. But the millennials are what they were talking about. And they were saying some things about them that were interesting to my generation, maybe even to the millennial generation. That people in Generation Z, the people they are friends with electronically are just as important as the people they know face to face. So in other words, if you have a friend that you're interacting with you know, by text or by Facebook or one of those things, and you have a friend in California, that friend is, is as much of a friend to you as someone that you live next door to and see every day. That's what that means to them. They're not so much interested in a face-to-face. Electronically is where they build their friendships at. I thought that was pretty astounding, but the thing was, the point was, it was a Christian broadcast, and the, the topic was, how do we reach them? How do we understand them in order to reach them with the gospel? And the point is, you have to understand what they're thinking and be able to converse in that to talk to them about Christ. They asked them about Facebook, and they said, Facebook is for old people. If your grandparents are on Facebook, then that's not the place for you. And so all of us grandparents who are on Facebook, those folks aren't, because that's for the older crowd. We seem to come up late on that. They were there at the beginning, and then once, once we got involved with it, it was too old for them, and so they left. But the point is, you have to understand this in order to talk to them, to reach them with the gospel. And a lot of times, as Christians, we, we withdraw from the world and not, don't care about what goes on. When Israel was preparing for battle, David was getting his troops together to take over where Saul was left off. And it says this in 1 Chronicles 12. It says, these are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him as the Lord had said. And it goes on to list a whole bunch of different folks that he was gathering amongst them. And verse 32 says this. He also gathered the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. These men were up on current events. They knew all their stuff that was going on. They knew what was better in society, and they were better able to help David in the battle. You know, one of sometimes the criticisms that Christians get is that we check our brains at the door. How many have ever heard that phrase? There's Christians we kind of just advocate, advocate, or abdicate. There we go. Yeah, thanks. We abdicate our knowledge of the world, and all we do is focus on spiritual things. There's a phrase that says, he's too spiritually minded to be any earthly good. How many of you ever heard that phrase? And that, it doesn't mean that spirituality is insignificant. It means that we don't interact with the worldly things. We don't understand what is going on in the world. We have to have an understanding of what is in the world that we live in today. How many have ever thought, you know, as long as I know the Bible, that's all I need to know? Now, that's partially true. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. 
So everything we need to know about God in order to love and serve Him is in the Bible. But it doesn't mean that we shut ourselves off from the rest of the world. We don't, we don't become a monastery. We don't become a bunch of monks. We interact with the world in order to minister to them. We should have a working knowledge of how the world works. Do we have an understanding of how basic economics work? Simple math. What are the things in society that are going through working right now that we have to understand and maybe use that to further what we're doing? I'll give you an example. Those of you who've been around Christianity for a while, you've noticed a lot of changes in services. You notice a lot of changes in songs and in technology. How many remember flipping overheads for the songs? Well, unless you are in a cave, those things don't work anymore. Different things are coming along, and Christians need to be aware of those things. And one of those things is being able to interact with society. I'm going to give you an example that's in the news lately. What's relevant for us as believers? How many have heard the term socialism lately in the news? How many have ever heard the term democratic socialism? Democratic socialism. How many know there's no such thing? It's an oxymoron. You either are democratic or you are socialist. You cannot be both. And the way that the world is talking about it now, it, it makes it seem like it's the same. Now, why is that important for us believers? Because socialism in history has always led to what? Communism. Communism and socialism throughout the world is responsible for what? Millions and millions of people being killed. Mostly Christians. They've killed, socialism slash communism has killed more people than Hitler could ever dream of killing. Now what's the difference? The difference, why do we, why do we look at the, the, the Nazi problem? That was an issue. Well, for them, Hitler was killing other people. Communism, socialism, they kill their own people. And so it's not talked about as much. Socialism is economically unworkable. How many understand that? It does not work. It cannot work. It has never worked. In the history of the world, it has never worked. It works for a little bit, then it stops working. Margaret Thatcher said this, the problem with socialism is you're always running out of somebody else's money. If you don't think socialism is a bad thing, look at the news. Venezuela, Greece, France are on fire because it's collapsing. Now, why is this important? Because when we hear news reports and stories, and you're going to soon hear campaign ads about this, we understand that it may sound good at the beginning, and it always works at the beginning. But in the end, it is the destruction of Christianity in this country as we know it, if we allow it to go on. If we as Christians just stay in our little bubble and don't interact with society, what will happen is it will overwhelm us. Edmund Burke, we all know this quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is what? Good men to do nothing. That's why Christians need to be involved. 
Socialism is antithetical to Christianity and it will wipe it out if it's allowed to progress. Now I'm not saying that we soak ourselves in the news and that's all we do. In fact, I've withdrawn from that for the most part because I just get very agitated and upset. But it doesn't mean you, you discard it totally. You understand what's going on so you're able to effectively minister to the people that are out there. All right, enough of knowing how the world works. I think we all have an understanding of that. Now Paul goes on writing, on writings of the day. He says this in verse 28, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Since Paul knew about the world in which he lived, he was able to use that writing, those quotes, and things in real life that people understood at that moment in order to bring in the gospel. We're, taking a, we're doing a lesson on Wednesday nights about effectively evangelizing the world and the people closest to us. And the big topic is how do you turn a conversation from daily things into spiritual things? And, and the part is, the main part is first striking up a conversation, being able to communicate with someone you're talking to, and then somewhere in that conversation, turning it around and using it as a springboard for the, for the gospel. That's our goal as Christians. Now Paul goes on in verse 29 and says, therefore since we are God's offsprings, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's skill and design. Now, what did he say the verse before that? He said we're God's offspring, right? We're God's kids. Now, if we are God's kids and we are flesh and blood and we're human, why do we think that our father is a stone or a mineral or a rock. Aren't, aren't kids supposed to be like their fathers? Aren't they supposed to look like their dads or their parents? If that's true, using your logic, things that you know in your society, I'm, I'm quoting from people that you know who are secular folks, I'm quoting this and I'm using that as a logical argument to talk to them about. Your own poets, people that you like and you admire, you read about, they say, we're God's offsprings, and that's true. So if we're God's offsprings, then we should resemble God a little bit. God's not a rock, God's not a stone, God's not a carved image. If we're not that, why we, we think that God is? Now in verse 30, he goes on, he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. That's Old Testament. Doesn't mean they weren't guilty, it just means God passed over them waiting for Christ to come. Acts 14, 16, he says, in the past, he let all nations go their own way. And that simply means God withheld his judgment and wrath on those nations. God's always more interested in repentance than he is for judgment. How many know that? The reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet is God wants more and more people to be saved. Now, there's gonna come a time where that ends and Christ does come back and that period is over. But right now, we're in an age of grace and God wants as many as possible to come to know him, which is our responsibility. But in the Old Testament, he let nations go for years and years and decades and centuries before he finally, a lot of times, used Israel to punish them. He would send them in and then cause God's wrath using Israel as a, as a tool. And if you read Ezekiel 25 to 32, you'll see God's judgment in all these different various nations using Israel as, as the tool. 
But then also, as Israel and Judah failed, God used other nations to punish them. But again, it was after many, many years of allowing them and overlooking them before he finally gave in. Now, but now we're not in that time period anymore. We are in the New Testament, and Paul is saying to them, verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now they had no excuse. Jesus was relatively a contemporary. They understood what happened to him. They knew through word of mouth what happened to Jesus at Calvary. And they knew about God's love. They understood everything. So it's no longer they're acting out of ignorance. They had seen God's demonstration of love through Christ, and now they had a command to repent. And if that command for them is not heeded, judgment for them is certain. Verse 31 says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's the man? Jesus. Right? How do we know it's Jesus? Well, because God showed them and proved to them who it was. Verse 31 says, He has given proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Resurrection. Cornerstone of our faith, right? Last week we celebrated communion and we, we remember the sacrifice and the suffering that Jesus paid, which is vital for our salvation. But that's not all. If there was no resurrection, if Jesus was not raised, that sacrifice would not have worked. Because God validated everything that Jesus said and did by the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still under condemnation for your sins. It wasn't the punishment, it wasn't the crucifixion, it was the resurrection where God says, everything that he suffered, I am validating by raising him from the grave. The resurrection should be and is sufficient evidence for our faith. When we talk to people, we talk about the resurrection. And one of the things about the resurrection is the Bible talks about resurrection power. How many have noticed a remarkable change in your life after you came to know Christ? Your life changed. What is that? That's the resurrection power. The only thing that God can do is change you. How many of you have gotten married and tried to change the person you're married to? How does that work out for you? It doesn't. You usually can't change someone. You can tweak them a little bit, but for the most part, they are who they are. The only one who can change a person is Christ by the power of the resurrection. The Holy Spirit gets in and he will change a person's life. If you don't like your life and you want to be changed, the Bible says God has the power to do that. God can get in your life and just turn you around and change who you are, which is amazing to me. Now, you'll still have the same characteristics you did before, but your heart, your attitude, everything you are will be different. How many have noticed that after you've gotten saved, your idiosyncrasies are still there? And you wish they weren't, but they're still there. God changes your heart. He doesn't really change your, I'll give you an example. Paul in the Bible was a pretty 
in-your-face, confrontational kind of guy. He was that as a Pharisee, and he was also that as a Christian. God changed his heart. He saved him. He loved people, but he's still arrogant, in-your-face kind of guy. Peter was a, the only time he opened his mouth was to change feet, all right? And that's, that was him before he was saved, and that was him after he got saved. Because the personality is the same, the heart's desire is what God changes. If you don't want to be who you are because you don't like your life, God will transform that in an instant. But you'll still have your own idiosyncrasies left. And as you get older in the Lord, God will also begin to work on those as well. The ones that you see that you don't like, you pray about God will eventually remove those from you. How many of you act the same way you do now that you did when you were 15 or 20? I hope nobody. Why? Because what happens is you, as you age, those things fade away. And as you age as a believer, those things also fade away. The things you don't want in your life. If you're a hothead, I mean, you'll still be a hothead when you get saved. But God can change that if you want him, if you let him. We were talking to the teens today about, about choices. And I, I told them that God can change anything, but it requires you to work at it as well. How many understand that? One of our teens was looking for a job. And she got one. And I asked her, did you sit at home on a couch waiting for God to ring your doorbell and say, here's a job for you? Or did you actually go out and fill out applications and knock on doors and talk to people? She said she did that one. Because generally, if you sit at home and do nothing, God's not going to knock on your door and give you a job. It requires you to do the work to get the job. And that's the way it is with us as believers. If you want something to change, God will give you the power to change it, but you have to want to do it. We talked about exercise. How many of you like exercise? Yeah, I'm not a big exercise kind of guy, as you can probably tell. I was trying to tell them, you know, as teenagers, no one likes their own body, right? They all, they want to be something else. If you, want, if you have blonde hair, you want to have dark hair. If you have dark hair, you want to have blonde hair. If you have straight hair, you want to have curly hair. If you have curly hair, you want to have straight hair, all that stuff. And I was trying to encourage them to, to like the body that they have, what, what God's given them. Because they're probably not going to change. If you're five foot zero, you're probably going to be five foot zero. If you're six two, you're going to be six two. You're not going to shrink. Now, you can tweak those. But for the most part, the body you have is the body God gave you. And you want to take care of that and don't want to be somebody else. Don't be unhappy with your life because you're not somebody else. Don't be unhappy with what God's given you because you want something else. And a lot of times Christians, in our, in our attempt to be more Christ-like, want to be like somebody else. But God never called us to be anybody else. God called us to be who we are under God's anointing and his spirit. God was able to use Paul as a confrontational kind of guy because he had to do a lot of that. Read Corinthians, a whole book of Corinthians was about him correcting the church. So he had to be confrontational. Peter was more relational, and he used that in his books to relate to the people. So God uses who you are and your personality traits as you allow him to tweak them and become what he wants you to be. 
Now we know that everyone's not on board with the resurrection. How many of you know people that don't believe it? Right? Verse 32 says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Anybody ever laugh at you? Make fun of you? For what you believe? Have you ever thought to yourself, just in a moment, this does sound kind of ridiculous. All this, the resurrection in heaven and hell, is it really true? We did a study on several, while, uh, several years ago in Wednesday night on a book called Faith and Doubt. How many understand that doubt is okay, is a good thing? Because what it does is it challenges you to find out if what you're doubting is true. Rather than taking it on, on, quote, faith that someone told you, doubt causes you to study it for yourself, to find out for yourself. And a lot of times when people have a doubt about something, it causes us to press in to really find out if it's true or not, to really solidify our faith. When people sneer at you and, and make fun of you, I'm sure it causes some doubt in your mind. And that's okay. Because God wants you to solidify that, study up on it, and convince yourself and be sure of yourself so that when the next time someone comes after you or says something that you don't understand, you are well, well enough versed that it's not going to shake your doubt. It's not going to make you upset. So when people sneer at you, use it as, as a tool to press in. Now, when they sneered at him, Remember where he was. Athens, bed of idolatry. No one ever thought about resurrection there. The God Apollo was credited by the Athenians council as saying this, there is no resurrection. So this is one of the gods that they worshiped in that town and he said according to their writings that there is no resurrection. So the response he received, he probably expected. He, he knew where he was, he knew his audience, he knew what they would say. So he wasn't surprised. When we talk to people about Christ, we shouldn't be surprised at their reaction. If you're old enough when you got saved, if you remember your reaction the first time someone told you about Christ, if it was like mine, it was like, you guys are crazy. You guys are insane. My first time walking in an Assembly of God church, I thought they were nuts. <laughs> I thought, this church is crazy. This is exactly what I don't want. Because why? Because we don't have the Holy Spirit. The Bible says unless the Spirit of God teaches you that, the things of God are foolishness to you. So we should expect that type of reaction, but it should not draw us away from being able to do it. Now, Paul expected that reaction, and yet he still preached to them. He still used his knowledge of their, of their town, the community, the people, and he still used it to share the gospel with them. We can't let people's reaction cause us to doubt to the point where we stop living our life and, and talking to people about Christ. Because the rest of that verse says this. Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you on this subject again. The main point is we don't know which camp people are in. We don't know if they're the people that are going to sneer at us, or we don't know if they're the people that, that want to hear more about it. 
one of the things we've been talking about on Wednesday as we witness is a lot of times when you talk to people about Christ, you're like the fifth or sixth person in line that God's been using to minister to them. They asked Billy Graham about when people come to the altar and get saved at his crusades, he said, I realize that I'm just an instrument that God's using to grow right at that moment. But there's so much work behind it to get them to that point. Because I know there's people praying for them. I know there's churches praying for them. I know there's ministry and witnessing going on. All this has been done in preparation for what's happening right now. Without all of that, he said, my ministry would be ineffective. So when we pray for someone, the Bible says that one waters, one plants, God gives the increase. You never know who you're talking to that may have been prayed for for years. And all of a sudden, you just happen to be in the right space at the right time. And God has prepared them to hear that right now. And you're just basically a tool that God is using at that moment and has been prepared for for years by family members and friends and churches. And they're ready for it because all that preparation has been done. And you just happen to be lucky enough to stand in front of them. And you tell them the gospel, and they get saved. And it's basically not because of anything you did other than talk to them about Christ. The preparation's already been done. People have been praying for them and witnessing to them and talking to them. And finally, God's going to use you to give the increase. Verse 34, or 33 and 34 says, At that Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Aragopolis, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, notice that even in a town of idolatry where it was, Christianity was not even thought about. The response, people still got saved. Wasn't a lot in comparison to the town, but he had an official get saved and some lady that was, we don't know anything more about her than her name. God used Paul in that godless town to minister to people, and people actually responded. They trusted and they believed the message. You never know where you're going to be, and you never know who's going to listen to you. And it may not be a huge response, but maybe there's one person there or two people that you're talking to that actually respond to that. So with the exception of the few folks that got saved and a few that wanted to talk more about it, the council he was in, he, remember he's in a council, he's not in town. They were brought before the town council and their job was to allow him or not allow him to preach in the town. And his job at the council was to present his case and he presented it and it says a few folks got saved but the majority of the council did not. They rejected him and they no longer allowed him to preach in the town anymore. So what happens? He did exactly what Jesus told the disciples to do. Shake the dust off and move on. He left the council and not long after that he left the town in Acts 18 verse 1. It says after this, after what? First uh, 33 says Paul left the council. Acts 18.1 says Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So basically, Paul, at that moment, was rejected by the town. Some folks got saved, some folks understand it, and some folks were curious. But for the most part, the town rejected him. And so he didn't 
standing around crying about it. He didn't go back and petition again. He did exactly what Jesus said. If they reject you, shake the dust off your foot and keep moving. Don't let failure or perceived failure stop you from doing what God wants you to do. We mentioned BBS this morning. My last three years at my other church, I was always an adult CE director for the church. In the last three years, the, uh, the children's pastor had left and the senior pastor said, uh, you are doing kids. I went, oh, kids, not kids, anything but kids. And so I go in and there, we have 50, 60, you know, elementary age kids in the group and I'm thinking, I don't, I'm gonna kill one of them. I don't know how to do this. But I had a good team around me. But the point was, God equipped me to do that. And some of the best memories I have are ministering to the kids in that group at that time. And I didn't want to do it. Wasn't think, thinking I was called to do it. But God used me to build relationships with the kids in that group. Now I see these kids on Facebook. Most of them are married and have kids of their own. But the point is, just because I thought I was going to be a failure at it, and I wasn't very good at it, God still used me in that area. Now this is going to be a, an unadulterated plug for VBS. So get ready. Just because you don't think you want to work with kids for VBS, or even a Wednesday night program or Sunday morning program, doesn't mean God's not speaking to you about doing that. You may think you're ill-equipped, you don't want to do it anymore, I'm, I'm done with kids. That's what I thought. But God had to force me into doing it to understand that I could really have an effect on, on these kids' lives. You may have the same effect that you don't even think you can have. Because after you work at VBS or after you work in kids' ministry, years from now when you see these same kids that were little kids at that time serving God, and some of them are even in ministry now, you realize that what you did in their lives made a difference. My, my prayer all the time is, Lord, let it matter that we're here. Does it matter that we're here? Does it matter that this church is here? Does it matter that I'm here? You want your life to matter and mean something, which is actually one of the things that the millennials and, and Z generation wants to do. More than anything else, they want their lives and their work to matter to people. And that's what we want. Does our ministry, does our church, does our, whatever we do here, does it really matter to the people that are here? And a lot of times you're not gonna see that until years in the future. But I can tell you, when you don't do it, it's not gonna matter at all. I, I saw a picture on Facebook the other day, a line of progression of all these older gentlemen from years gone by, and it started with a Sunday school teacher I can't remember the order, but it led Billy Sunday to the Lord. Billy Sunday led somebody else to the Lord. Somebody else led somebody else to the Lord, and that person led Billy Graham to the Lord. And the progression went on. Everybody remembers all those names, but nobody remembers the Sunday school teacher that did the first thing. We could be that people. And we may never see it on this side. But our lives can have a positive effect if we don't let our fear and failure stop us from doing it. Notice Paul didn't stay around trying to 
trying to beat this dead horse. He understood the gospel wasn't working in that town, so he went to an area that it might work. I thought about that for a moment. If something's not working well, rather than trying to keep working at it, maybe God's calling us to do something else. How many of you have an older car that you keep just pouring your money and money into it? I've had one of those. It eventually gets to the point where you say, you know what, it's not worth all the money I'm putting into this thing to keep it running. Maybe my money is better spent on this. Right? Keith just got another car, that's why I said that. He got a real car this time. But the point is, there may be things in ministry and things in our own life that don't work anymore. Rather than trying to tweak it and make it work, maybe God's calling us to do something else. So in Paul, instead of staying around doing what he thought he should do, he was not producing much fruit, he's not doing anything, he's not affecting anybody, maybe it's time to move to something that might work. And he goes from there, from Athens to Corinth. And as we see, we're going to see in Corinth, great response to the gospel. A lot of people get saved. Now, the church had a lot of issues that Paul had to deal with, but it's a lot different than working with people who don't believe at all. And so Paul's ministry was fruitful in Corinth, took some tweaking, took some correction and some harsh lettering. But Paul's ministry was a success in Corinth because he left behind what wasn't working to go to some place that God could do something else. Would you stand as we close this morning? I'm going to let you out early. I know you hate that. And I know that especially the kids' ministry is going to hate that because they're not ready for you guys. So you all can feel like you can, you know, hang around here and talk for a little bit. I know a lot of you don't want to get your kids yet. So you're good to leave them downstairs for another 10 minutes or so. Let's bow our heads, would you? You know, maybe you're here this morning and this is your very first time in Dover Assembly or maybe you've been here for years. In either case, the, the question's still the same because it's possible to sit in church for years and not really have a relationship with Christ. You can know everything there is to know about him but still not have that relationship with him. It's a relationship that we have one-on-one -on -one communication that I can talk to, talk to my dad, my father, and knowing that he hears me, he understands me, and he loves me. If you know a lot about Jesus, but you don't know him personally, you don't experience that type of relationship. If you're here and you've never experienced that and Maybe you've been in church all your life. Grew up in church. Said some prayer when you were five years old. But it's never went further than that. Your life really hasn't changed a lot. And you want it to. You want it to mean something. You want it to matter. And the only way your life is going to really matter is if you give it to Jesus and allow him to change it and use it for something that will matter.
If you're here and you want that, I want you to raise your hand right now. All right, I'm going to believe we're all committed followers of Christ. Father, we do thank you for allowing us to be here. We thank you, Jesus, for your blessings in our life every day. So many blessings. So much you've poured into us that we can't begin to thank you for. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do that. Your word says that we should be filled with the Spirit, and we know that means to be continually filled. Like a gas tank needs to be continually filled. We need to be continually filled with God's Spirit, which gives us the wisdom and the fruit of the Spirit, which we all desire. Lord, fill us with that Spirit. Fill us with your wisdom. Fill us and allow us to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the goodness and the kindness, gentleness, self-control, all those things where we need in our life and only is available through you. So Lord, I pray that you would fill each person here with that. Allow us to understand that, God, you're calling us to step out. We know, Lord, that being in your, in your kingdom is not a spectator sport. We don't sit around waiting for others to do it. We know that you have called us to do it. Whether that's talking to one person or talking to thousands. Lord, we know that you're calling each one of us to do something. So Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your wisdom. Fill us with that call. Let, that, let us sense that urgency in our life that you're calling us to make a difference, to matter in the life of somebody else. Even in this idolatrous town, Paul was able to matter to a few people. Lord, help us to matter to at least a few people. Father, I pray your blessings upon each person as we leave today. Allow us to experience not just here, not just in this building, but everywhere we go, allow us to experience the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ every day, all day. And allow people to see that in our lives. And then give us divine opportunity to talk to them, maybe using things that they are familiar with, maybe sports, maybe news, current events, and allow us to Use those to bring in the gospel and how Jesus can change a situation. Father, we love you this morning. We just want to be what you want us to be. So we commit ourselves to you to do that in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 Have a great week. We will see you Wednesday. You can hang out here. Let your kids be down there for another few minutes. You don't have to get them right away. But you do have to get them. <laughs>